What a morning already. Wow. Um, to see God move in, in not just the life of, of one person, but his entire family um, is, is pretty cool. So, um, and then to hear you guys sing, I, I, when you're singing, um, and, and we're doing that together, man, I just like to stop and, and close my eyes and imagine, like, what, what's that day going to be like when we're singing around the throne? And that's a, that's a small glimpse of it. So, uh, wow, what a morning. Uh, and then uh, Levi, I, I love how the Holy Spirit does this. Levi and I didn't talk about what uh, he was going to talk about and what I was going to preach on, and yet uh, he led into where I'm going to go perfectly this morning. So uh, he hit on the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, I'm going to hit on 1 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning. And so uh, God is just doing some things in our midst. But this is the final week of our series uh, that we're calling It's Who We Are. Uh, we've started this seven weeks looking uh, really at things that should make us a church. Things that we should hold dear, not just as a church in its entirety, but as individual believers. And so we're wrapping up that series this morning. Uh, and then next week, we're going to start seven weeks looking through some of the psalms. Uh, what I want you to see is as we look at uh, different types of psalms, different uh, emotions behind them, I want you to see that in all of them, they point directly to Jesus Christ. And so we're going to spend seven weeks uh, in a series working through different psalms that we're calling in all seasons. So uh, Ron is going to kick off next week. Uh, Ron Payne, I, 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 the first week is, is all about wisdom. And I thought, man, I have a very limited supply, but I do know somebody who has some. And this is not because he's old. He's just a wise man in general. And so uh, I, I said, Ron, hey, Need you, need you to step up here because I think this is the one that's meant for you. And so, man, I'm excited to see what he's going to bring uh, next week. But let's recap. As we end this series, let's kind of recap where we've gone uh, over the previous six weeks. So we resolved to be a church who, first week we said, man, we work hard. Colossians 3.23 informs us of the way we're to live. We work hard to glorify God. So this is uh, informing who we are to be as believers in the life that we live. Week two, uh, we said we are growing in Christ, uh, not just to puff ourselves up. We're growing in Christ to help others do the same. The core value that we laid out was we are filled to be emptied. The reason why you're here this morning, the reason why I'm here, is not just so that we can feel good about ourselves for an hour. It's so that we can be built up together, glorifying Christ, making much of him, and going and living our lives and doing the exact same thing. Week three, we said, man, this is one of those culturally acceptable things that we as a church have got to push against. That our culture is very much permissive of the sin of gossip. It's just kind of what we do. And we said if we don't bristle against this, if we don't push and reject against the gossip culture, it has the ability to upend everything that God is doing in our midst. And so we are a place because we are a people in which gossip is unsafe. Week four, we said we live and work with integrity. The way that we live, the way that we conduct ourselves outside of this place matters because we're communicating a message about who Jesus Christ is and what he's done in our lives. We live and work with integrity. We said we are a people of strong character. Week five, we said our first ministry is at home. If you remember the tagline right at the beginning, we said you can win in every other area of life, but if you're losing at home, you lose. Our first ministry is 
is at home. We exist to build up strong families. And then last week, we make decisions through prayer, not out of fear. We are a people who do not live in fear because we know how this ends. We know who Christ is and that we can trust that he is who he says he is. And so today, as we wrap up this series, we are highlighting the core value of team mentality We each do our part to make Christ known. You know, I've talked numerous times, especially over the last few weeks, about one of these false belief systems that often infiltrates the church and certainly does today. It's this idea that there are varying levels or tiers of believers. And it's it's maybe not said, but it's certainly lived in the way that we conduct ourselves, especially in here. We, we act as though tier one is those who are paid by the church. Those are the professional Christians. You just let them do their thing. And, and in fact, your role in that is just to come and watch. Come be entertained. Come feel good about yourself for a moment. Tier one is the professional Christians. And then we pretend as though tier two are the extra spiritual Christians. This may be viewed as as somebody having a certain gift. Maybe somebody's got the gift of teaching. Maybe uh, somebody else has a gift that you perceive as as better than something that you have. And so we kind of place them on a higher pedestal than we do tier three, which is the average Christian, the average church member. You don't really have anything to offer this place. You you just really come and listen and be entertained and, and just make sure you give and come back again next week. This is, this is how we've kind of built up the church system to play out. And what we're going to see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is that this could not be further from the truth. That you and I, regardless of the gifts that we've been given, have an important and vital role to play in the life of the body of Christ, the church. And so we're going to see, though, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and actually through the whole book of 1 Corinthians, that this categorizing of Christians is not a new phenomenon. This is not something new that we're just dealing with in our day. They were dealing with this back in the 60s, A.D. 50s and 60s, in their culture as well. Like, how how do we stagger this thing? How how do we layer believers? How do we make sure that this important gift is up front and and the rest are kind of shunned? And so Paul's going to write against that this morning. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is where we'll start. And let me give you just a little bit of context so you know where, why, how this letter is written. Paul has written 1 Corinthians around A.D. 56. The church was established in Corinth by Paul in the year 50. So in six years... As Paul writes this letter, if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, what you're going to see is that in six short years, the church has completely lost its mind and is on the verge of ceasing to become a church. So Paul is writing to the Corinth church, pleading for them to to remember the main things. Remember what actually matters. And he's going to address certain issues. And so uh, in, in six short years, this church has become very close to completely losing its way. And let me just lay out a couple of the issues that are facing the church. This is not an exhaustive list. This isn't every issue that they're facing, but it's some of the main ones. So you can see really how messed up this church is. The first issue that they're dealing with, Paul lays out at the very beginning, is you can't even figure out who you're following. 
Everyone in the church in Corinth seems to have their favorite leader. And Paul says, some of you are saying, I follow Paul. Others of you are saying, I follow Apollos. Some of you are saying, I follow Cephas. And, and a few of you have gotten it right to say, I follow Christ. And he's reminding them, listen, I don't care who your favorite preacher is. We all exist to magnify Christ. So Paul, Apollos, Cephas, they're just a piece of the body that is meant to glorify Jesus. We're not in this popularity contest. No, we all exist operating within our gifts to glorify Jesus. Then he says, not, not only can you not figure this out, you can't really figure out what you're supposed to do in the face of sin entering the church. He says, and, and this is an explicit thing, but he says, listen, there, there's, uh, there's somebody in your midst that, that is having unnatural relations with his mom. And he says, and you're not just, you're not just tolerating it. The exact word that Paul says in the NIV is, you're proud of it. You're, you're approving of it. And so he says, you've got to get this under control. You've got to understand that the church is meant to glorify God and represent him. Sin has no place within the church. And so we call that out. We encourage one another to repent, to seek forgiveness from Christ, and we grow in righteousness together. But we don't, we don't glorify sin. We don't exalt sin. No, we, we handle it head on. Later on, he says, you've got, you got different church members that are suing one another. You want to talk about division within the church. You want to talk about awkward Sunday mornings. Like, you've got somebody sitting over here that's got a lawsuit against somebody over here. And how in the world are you supposed to focus on Christ when you've got all this stuff going on in your midst? And, and it wasn't only taking place in the church. Paul is going to later on zoom out and say, in fact, the whole city of Corinth is built on this idea of pagan worship. There were pagan gods all over the city, all types of different altars and shrines where people would go and worship, and oftentimes doing pretty heinous things in the name of worship. And Paul says, and some of you that are in the church, that are believing in Christ, have continued in that. So you're living this double life of, of living a life worshiping pagan gods, and, and now you're trying to worship Jesus just as one of them. And then we're going to get to the point uh, of this morning Paul says at the beginning of chapter 12, he, he says maybe the most distracting of all of these issues is the fact that many of you within the church are, are seeking these showy gifts. You're seeking these gifts that to the rest of the church seem like they're elevating you above them. And, and Paul lays them out. Some of you are seeking uh, tongues. Some of you are seeking prophecy. Some of you are seeking healing. And, and the point of all that is this. But the heart behind it is so that you can elevate yourselves above someone else. So you've got this church that is competing with one another. And what we, we can kind of surmise from that is that when the church is just focused on themselves and one another, there is little room for them to focus on Christ. And this is what Paul is trying to get them to understand. You're, you're so concerned with, with being up front, with, with looking good for everyone else in the church, that you're missing the entire point of the gifts to begin with. And so Paul deals with this issue head on. So you have a church that is constantly seeking and constantly praying for certain gifts. And, and quite honestly, it's not unlike much of our church culture today. 
But Paul dismantles this idea that you should seek a certain gift in chapter 12, verse 11, when he says, the Spirit distributes every believer certain gifts just as he determines. Nowhere in Scripture will you see that the gifts are something that you should continually seek. No, Paul says that the Spirit's going to give you those as he sees fit. And why does he give those to you? To build up the body of believers in righteousness and maturity as you all focus on Christ. This is the point of spiritual gifts. So a setup's where we'll go this morning. There's a couple characteristics that the church should have that Paul is going to lay out in this section of chapter 12. The first thing that he says is the church has got to be unified. The church has to have unity. So we're going to jump in starting in verse 12 because Paul is going to start by illustrating these points by using the body as an analogy. He says in verse 12, Just as a body, though one, has many parts... But all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ. What Paul is doing here is is causing you to step back for a moment and see the church in the correct light. See the church for how it was meant to be. The church is not a business. The church is not an organization. The church is an organism. The church is a body. The church is living. The church is active. And this is what Paul is trying to stress And while you certainly would see your own body as a whole, you should start to understand the analogy that Paul is making here. Your body's not limited to your hand. Your body's not limited to your eye, your toe. The body is a collection of all of those. And and Paul is trying to stress that all of these parts, they operate for a specific purpose to support and function with the entire body. So Paul says, who you are and the gifts you've been given matter. You matter to the church. I I think that's where we need to start with some of you. You matter to the church. Your gifts are valuable to the church. So so I want to say, if if you've got this idea that, that you are somehow lesser than, or you're a JV Christian because maybe you're not up here, or you don't have a gift that everybody sees on a Sunday morning, Paul is pushing against this and saying, no, no, it's just different. One's not more valuable than the other. They all, they all play into this role of making Christ known. And, and Paul ends this verse in chapter 12 saying, so it is with Christ. In saying this, what Paul is doing is establishing something head-on. He's saying, first of all, Christ is the head of the church. And he says this so that you and I would not think that whoever has the most showy gift is the one in charge. Paul says, no, Christ is the head of the church. So practically speaking, for Redbrush, Christ is the head of Redbrush. It's not me. It's not you, it's not the elders. Certainly function in different roles in that, but Christ is the head of Redbrush. Christ is the builder of the church. It's from him, by him, and it's certainly for him. Christ is the head of the church. And since since Christ is the head of the church, he's going to bring people in and place them as he sees fit. So we approach this issue of spiritual gifts lightly. Because what this should do is dismantle any ounce of pride that you or I may have because of the gifts given to us. 
we start to recognize that if I've got the gift of teaching or if I've got the gift of hospitality or if I've got the gift of giving, all of that functions for one purpose only, to elevate Christ, not myself. Your gift is to build up the church as we seek to magnify Christ. And so it should prevent us from thinking our role isn't vital to the life of the church. He says in verse 13, For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Believers in Christ have received the Holy Spirit. This morning as we watched Jordan confess Uh, that Jesus is Lord, we're reminded that in submitting to him and being obedient through baptism, Jordan has the Holy Spirit. Not, Not a portion of it. Not some of it. All of it. As believers, you've received the Holy Spirit. And the point of that is, is one, to help you walk in obedience to Christ, to live the Christian life, but two, to to build us up in maturity so that as we belong to this body now, we operate for the good of each other to magnify the name of Christ. And he also says this, it, it does not matter the social status that you've come in with. He says, there's no Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. All of them have received the Holy Spirit We would do well to remember this. To remember that the Holy Spirit is the one who appoints these gifts. It is not you or I to decide who should or who shouldn't be a part of this. Who should or shouldn't receive these gifts. It is the Holy Spirit as he sees fit. Verse 14. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So as we talk about unity, the unity is not found in our gifts. The unity is found in a mutual agreement that all of these different gifts exist for one purpose only. To glorify God. To make Christ known. And second, our unity is found in using whatever gifts the Spirit has given each of us in order to build up the body of believers. Why is this important? Well, I believe Paul understands that unity on its face sounds good, but but you can be unified in the wrong things. So Paul wants us to understand that our unity is around Christ. Our our unity is built around that. Like, Like we exist to glorify him and we have to unify around that. Because it's possible to be unified around the wrong things. Uh, We can be unified around tradition. Uh, We can be unified around a wrong interpretation of Scripture. Uh, We can be unified around the wrong things. So Paul is saying, hey, you need to make sure you're unified around the right thing. And that right thing is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you get that right and you see everything else as functioning for that purpose, then you have a church unified around the right things. Let me give you an analogy uh, for this. Um, We went to a couple Floral Wolves high school football games this past season. 
And imagine for a moment that you and I got to kind of get a behind-the-scenes access to the locker room, and, and we got to listen to the coach give the speech. But before that, there was a players-only meeting. Things hadn't been going extremely well, and, and the players get together, and you notice when they come out, like there's, a, there's an extra spring in their step. Like something's been said in that meeting that is really spurring them on to change the, the direction of the season. And so they come up to the coach and they say, Coach, we've had a meeting and we are on the same page. We have finally established unity. And so tonight, we're all playing quarterback. Every one of us. 47 quarterbacks. But we are unified around this fact that everyone's playing quarterback. It's unity around the wrong thing. It's chaos. Not a winning recipe. And so Paul says you, you've got to be unified around the right things. And this is the moment where Paul starts to shift from the importance of unity to the purpose of diversity in the function of the gifts. And here's what I mean. In verse 15 he says, Now if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. Paul is, is now shifting gears to this idea that not everybody has the same gift. So we're not all praying for the same gift. We're not all seeking the same gift. We're recognizing that the Spirit has given us those gifts, and they are there for an important function. Like you've got gifts that others don't. It's not to elevate you above them, but it's to make much of Christ as we all grow in these gifts and spur on one another. And so he's saying, listen, if, if the foot decides to give up because it's not an ear, you got issues. The body ceases to work properly. You got a head that says, man, I, I, I'm not a hand, so I quit. It's really detrimental to the rest of the body. Do not despise the diversity of gifts. Paul continues in verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? Uh, one of the, the bigger employers in our area is NAL, and many of you may work there. Imagine for a moment that uh, you guys got together, and, and production was, was a little slow, but uh, you decided, listen, we've, we've got to find unity. We've got to rally around something, and, and you decided we've all unified our organization uh, around the fact that all of us are now going to be the person that screws in the light bulb to the taillight. Thousands of people, we're all going to exist for this function. Well, it wouldn't take long before you have no headlights to screw a light bulb into. Right? And, so, and so Paul is saying, don't despise that there are different gifts within, within the church because the church works in the diversity of those gifts. Verse 18, but in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one 
body. Let's jump down to verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. What is the point of what Paul is saying here? He's he's saying, listen, we're not going to look down on one another because we perceive that you have a lesser gift than I do. Or or you're not going to look down on me because you perceive that, that my gift doesn't match the importance of yours. Each of these play a role in the life of the church. As I was thinking about this idea of the body, and and man, if you start looking up some of the intricacies of of how our body works, it is fascinating. But let's just take one that we're easily familiar with, one that you'll do before too long, the eating process. If you've thought about the process that goes into eating and what takes place thereafter, it is amazing the parts that have to work together properly in order for this to take place. So it, it starts with this. It starts with your mouth. And I'm reading directly from some scientific source. It says, food starts to move through your GI tract when you eat. When you swallow, your tongue pushes the food into your throat. A small flap of tissue called the epiglottis moves over your windpipe to prevent choking, and the food passes into your esophagus. Right away, we're we're just up into the eating part. We've got five different things that are taking place in this moment. As you begin swallowing, the process becomes automatic. Your brain signals the muscles of the esophagus, and peristalsis begins, this this contraction of the muscles that pushes the food down. It moves to your lower esophageal sphincter. When food reaches the end of your esophagus, a ring-like muscle called the lower esophageal sphincter relaxes and lets food pass into your stomach. The sphincter usually stays closed to keep what's in your stomach from flowing back into your esophagus. The stomach, after food enters your stomach, the stomach muscles mix the food and liquid with digestive juices. The stomach slowly empties its contents, called chyme, into your small intestine. The muscles of the small intestine mix food with digestive juices from the pancreas, liver, intestine, and push the mixture forward for further discussions. You all may want to wait for a few minutes before you eat after this. The walls of the small intestine absorb water and the digested nutrients into your bloodstream. As peristalsis continues, the waste products of the digestive process move into the large intestine. In the large intestine, waste products from the digestive process include undigested parts of food, fluid, and older cells from the lining of your GI tract. The large intestine absorbs water and changes the waste from liquid into stool. And I'm assuming you know the rest of this process. So, the point of all of that is for you to see how much goes into just something simple. And something as simple as eating that, that you may do without even thinking, your body knows exactly what to do because all of these parts are operating in the proper function. And Paul is using this analogy to say, this is what the church is meant to be. It's all of us operating in our gifts, and that's the way the church works best. So none of these parts in, in just the process of eating can say, man, I'm not a big deal to this. I may have a smaller role to play. People don't talk about me all that much. But if one of those goes off track, the whole process is thrown off. So it is with the church. Verse 
23, the end of verse 23. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. You may think that you don't have much of a role to play. You may feel like your part in this is insignificant. But what Paul has laid out is because of the spirit that's been given to you, each of you have a gift that is of utmost importance. Because we're not working necessarily first and foremost for each other. We're working for Christ. So operate in your gifts for him. And the way that that practically plays out is I'm going to have concern for you. I'm going to operate in my gifts for your maturation in Christ, my maturation in Christ. This is how we're called to operate. A couple years ago, um, I had a, a, a terrible toothache. I mean, that's a seemingly insignificant in comparison to the rest of the body, part of the body. But if you've had one of those toothaches, you know that has the ability to wipe out everything else. This this small piece of of bone and material has the ability to disrupt everything else. And and Paul is coming back to the body of Christ in this way, saying, listen, if if one of you is suffering, then, then the whole body is suffering. If one of you is joyful because of Christ. All of you should be joyful in Christ. We operate as a body, and one piece affects the other. Verse 27, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues or languages. What is the point of all of those? Well, Paul has established early on, it's certainly not to make yourself known. Those gifts are certainly not to elevate you above anyone else. No, they're for Christ and seeing him glorified. So Paul asks this question towards the end of this chapter. He says, so are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have the gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. The point of this line of questioning is is that it's rhetorical. Paul is asking the church, are, are all of you apostles? Are all of you prophets? Do all of you have the gift of tongues? Well, the answer is certainly no. No, because if you all had the same gift, it'd be a pretty dysfunctional body. So the Spirit has given gifts as he desires. And yet Paul ends with this, and this will be the last section we look at this morning. He says, Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I'll show you the most excellent way. Because what he's going to say is that no matter what gift you have, if it's not utilized correctly, it doesn't matter. So he says in verse third, or excuse me, verse one of chapter thirteen, he says, "If I speak in the tongues of men 
or of angels, but do not have love. I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Uh, what you're going to notice in what he says here is he's, he's going to start with something he can do and something that he can't do. And so the point of all of this is so that you see across all the spectrum, no matter how great my gift appears, whether I have none of it or all of it, if I don't have love, none of it matters. So he says, if I, have, if I speak in the tongues of men, which I can do, or of angels, which I can't do, anything in between, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I've got the gift of prophecy or, or teaching God's truth, I can do that. And if I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, I, I can't do that. And if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. So he brings us back to this truth. Each one of us has a gift, not sought after, given by the Holy Spirit as he sees fit, in order to build up the church and glorify Christ. But if it's not done in love, if it's done in a way that seeks to make you known as opposed to Christ, you're doing it all wrong. It would be better that you would keep silent. It'd be better that you wouldn't exercise that gift. So as we wrap up this series, the, the question as we've, we've laid out seven core values, I think all of them come down to this. In the face of the question of who do we want to be as a church, where, where do we go from here? I believe we're called to be a church unified in who Jesus is and who he's called us to be. How, how do we know this? How do we know who he is? How do we know what he's called us to be? We're a people of the word. We're a people that are obedient to what Christ has said in his word, and we're not just content to know it, we're content to know it and live it. This is the church that is unified. So as I, I was thinking about how to wrap up this series, I can think of no better conclusion than to pray that God would make us these people. But here's the start. It starts with you and I getting over ourselves. Get over yourself. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ and him alone. This is why the church exists. This is a church unified in the right things. It's not about what I want. It's not about what you want. It's not about personal preferences. It's not about being entertained. It is about making much of him. He is worthy to be praised, not me, not you. Man, if we get this, we are a church unified around the right things. So we remind ourselves that the life of the believer is one that is meant to magnify Christ. And when we hold to the word, we hold to these core values. We are a church made up of people who exist to make much of Jesus. That's a church I want to be a part of. So let's pray God makes us this type of people. Father, we recognize that we are a people only because you have made us that way.
We are children of the King, not because of anything of ourselves, but because you've brought us into your family. So, Father, may, may every ounce of pride be removed from us in, in understanding the fact that the gospel message is a declaration that we could not save ourselves, but that you did. So, Father, we recognize that Red Brush Christian Church and the church as a whole exists to glorify you. But, Lord, we're a selfish people. I'm a selfish person. Father, remind me of who you are and what you've done. And Father, as you've given each of us gifts, would we operate in those to glorify you and for the good of one another? May we be a church that is unified around loving each other as we love you more and more. But Father, we need your spirit. We need your spirit to draw us in to more of a relationship with you, more of obedience to your word. Lord, we recognize apart from you, we can do nothing. So God, as we seek to establish who we are, may it be from who you've called us to be. May it stem from who your son is and by extension, the people that you've called us to be as we've believed in you. Father, in our weakness, help us. Help us to love. Help us to hold the truth. And help us to remain humble. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of who you are. So, Father, you are worthy to be praised as we seek to magnify your name. Lord, it is in your holy and precious name that we pray these things.